He's in the process of uh, doing some modifications on his house after a big accident over there. Um, and we are finally just about through it. We're in good shape. Um, but so during that time, he asked if, if I could help fill in. Um, and I said, absolutely. I have no idea what I'm going to speak on, because that's just how Andrew is. Um, and I, I was still clueless earlier this week. So this is just my open and honesty with you guys. I don't know where to go to preach. I love preaching through a book because then I know where I'm going to be next week. Um, so on Tuesday, we were practicing music, and I just felt overwhelmed with the idea of who Jesus was. Um, and I was about in tears, and so now you guys are going to have to share that with me. I'm sorry. Um, because I wanted to look at who he was um, in a really unique place. We're going to be in, in my favorite book in the New Testament. Any of the teens in here? And by that, I just mean the sound room, I guess, because we just dismissed all the kids, huh? Any of the teens might be able to tell you, because I mention it all the time, my favorite book of the Bible is Philippians. Um, and I love it because when you're coming into the New Testament and you come through Romans and it's so theologically heavy, like you know that there were false teachers in Rome because Romans is just so heavy with nuanced of like you're going to understand the truth. And it's almost a little bit of correction from Paul, right? Like you can't let this come in. And then you reach First and Second Corinthians and they both refer to another letter that we don't have in the Bible. So that means there's actually a 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Corinthians that Paul is writing, correcting them. And it seems like every time that he would correct something, they would look at that letter and be like, all right, I think I got this. And then they'd mess it up in a new way. And so Corinthians was all about this correction, and it bogs me down. And then you come to Galatians, and Galatians is super kind and loving all the way through, right? Our famous quote of, oh, you foolish... Galatians, what a compliment. And so by the time you get to Ephesians and Philippians and these small little books, it's a relief to see that there's not these major problems, that Paul's not just trying to put out fires. And when he writes Philippians, I'm convinced he's trying to write it to mature believers who are ready to go one step further in their faith. And like when you don't have these major outstanding problems that are glaring to the whole world, what do you do? Like what is it to be a Christian. And so if you'll join me in Philippians 2, um, we're going to take a look at it. Now normally we, we do exegetical preaching here where we'll come in and read a whole book at a time. I am going to preach exegetically to you today. Um, we're going to take a chunk of passages. I'm going to try my best to, to piece it apart. But we're missing a little important part called the context of chapter 1. And we aren't ever going to get into chapters 3 and 4 with me right now. I guess I shouldn't say never. John's giving me a look that says maybe I'm on next week too. Um, <laughs> but so I'm going to try to piece in that work for you. I'm going I'm to try to give you some of the stuff that he talks about around this chapter that makes it so rich. Um, we're also going to try to hit the highlights because 30 minutes to talk about these 13 verses, not a whole lot of time. So before I try my very best to do this, let's stop and... Talk to the one who gave it to us in the first place. God, I thank you that you've given us your word. I, I thank you that, that you gave it to us in a way that we could understand. I thank you that you, you desired for it to be in our common tongue so that we could come together and read it. God, help me to just to speak well to the message that you've put here in the letter to the Philippians. Help us to leave changed because of the work that your spirit does in us. Pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to go really fast, guys. It's just how I preach. Sorry. Um, so we're going to talk about three marks of Christian growth. Where do we go when we are 
doing all right, I guess. Um, the first one, oh, it's not up there. I have to turn around. Um, is comforting love. I love how, how Paul writes this, right? He says, so if there's any encouragement, and if you notice Paul's writing, anytime he says so or therefore, he's building on an argument, right? The verse before this, he said, guys, I've got great news. We all get to suffer with Jesus. Woo! So if that's encouraging to you, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we're going to hone in just on the love for a second, because I feel like it is foundational to every other aspect of what we're going to talk about today. Now, if I asked you, where would you go to define this word love? Some of you would, would take me to the dictionary, and that's, that's a good step forward. Um, some of you would take me to 1 Corinthians 13. And that's a really good step forward because it's letting the Bible define the Bible. Um, but I'm going to take one more step forward and say in Philippians, Paul talks about this. So in the first chapter, we're going to just gloss through some of this. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a continued work that starts. This love that builds in you is a continued work from when you got saved. He says, and my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. And I love this verse because so often when I think about love, I think about compassion, I think about all of the things from 1 Corinthians, right? Being slow to anger, taking my time, being gentle. I don't think about knowledge and discernment. And here Paul's saying, listen, I, I want you to have comfort in love. And that comes through the truth. And man, in today's culture, that does not sit well. Because I don't want the truth from your love, not me personally, just speaking to the culture. I want what makes me feel okay, what makes me feel accepted. But Paul says there is something better, that when you have this knowledge and this discernment, you can approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless. He says it is worth the correction of love in your life because it makes you able to see what's excellent. And what's more, chapter 4, he goes on to say, listen, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, what's just and pure and lovely, what's commendable, if there is anything excellent in it, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. When you know what is excellent and you do it, this is what he says, the result is the God of peace will be with you. Three verses before, he had said that this peace passes all understanding. And not only do you get this peace from God, it's not just a gift that he gives you, but you get to be with the one who gives it. And so love is outspoken in truth. In such a way that you are led back to Christ. And frankly, that's hard. But we need to be a body of believers. When we, are, when we are confronted with the truth, we find comfort in it. And that also means that when I speak the truth, I need to do it in a way that is comforting. Number two, completion of joy. He says this, complete my joy, 2-2. Two, two by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord of one mind. 
Now on the surface, when I read this the first time, I was like, okay, yeah, complete my joy. Because as a pastor, I think nothing would make me happier than to know that all of my teens are growing. Because that means that I'm doing a really good job. That's my knee-jerk reaction. And I missed it. Because I read it on the surface and I didn't look at the context. Paul says, complete this joy of mine by being united. Well, where does that joy start? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He says, there are people out there, while he was in prison, there were people out there proclaiming the gospel for the sake of his life being more miserable, which is a little mind-boggling to me. I think it probably looks a little bit like, did you hear about Paul? Can you believe that he's out there saying that Jesus rose from the dead? And Paul's sitting there in his cell like, they just spoke the gospel. They didn't even want to. These are enemies of the cross, and they are speaking the gospel to make my life more miserable. And in that, I rejoice. He rejoices not because he's been such a good leader, but because the gospel has changed lives. His phrase complete there means to bring it to fulfillment, right? So this, this joy that started at the preaching of the gospel, he sees flourish into its full form when people are maturing in their faith. Now, I'm not saying that Paul was sitting there saying, my only joy in life is when people mature in their faith. I don't think it was all of his joy because he certainly had joy in the cross. He had joy in suffering for Christ. But he says, this joy that started when the gospel was preached is now full because I see you maturing. So who do you have in your life? Who is the person that you have preached the gospel to? Who is the person that that seed of joy has started and now you are beginning to see it come to fruition? We were not called to be solo in our relationship with Jesus, where it's just about me, and at the end of the day, I get to go home, and if I haven't sinned, then I pat myself on the back, and I don't have to worry about anyone else. Matthew 28 says that, that as Jesus was leaving earth, one of his last commandments he gave to his disciples was, go and make disciples. Christianity is not a sideline sport. And last, I want to talk about a change in priority. And frankly, this, this one section is probably why Philippians is my favorite book. Because I needed it drastically when I was, was a kid. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And I had this problem when I was a kid, where I did not understand humility. Because we always talked about humility, and I, and I just, we never defined it. We never talked about what it actually meant. And so as a kid growing up and being told, you need to be humble, you need to be humble, well, what does that mean? Well, it means lowly, it means meek. And I kept getting in this mindset that it meant putting myself down, and it was, I was great at it. My family helped me tremendously with it. I love older siblings. 
But humility is, is not self-hatred. It's not self-doubt. If you don't believe me, go and look at Ephesians 2.10, which says that you are a workmanship made by God for specific tasks. Go and look at 1 Corinthians 12, which says you have been given a part of the body of Christ that no one else fits the way you do. God has made you for wonderful things, and I don't say this to make you have a big head, but to get your focus back where it needs to be. So he goes on to say, let each of you not only look at his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I'll come back to that in a second, I promise. Philippians 1.20, he said, it, it, whew, sorry, that's not what he said. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. When Paul looked at his view of worth, he looked at Christ. He didn't look at what he could bring to the table. He looked at if Christ was being honored in his life. And so the view of self-esteem and making sure that we have a high self-esteem is it's secondary to how we esteem Christ. And frankly, as we get to know Christ better, as we esteem him higher, there are parts of our life that we're going to hate. Right? Look at Romans 7.24, where Paul says, O wretched man that I am. Because he was looking at the sin in his life that could not be there next to Christ. But he doesn't say that to say you have to beat up on yourself and, and hate yourself. In fact, in verse 4, he goes on to say caring for your own needs. It's an assumption that he makes that you're going to care for your own needs. This past week, I've cared for five people, realistically. I have made sure that five people ate. I have not made sure that they ate every meal because sometimes Rachel handled that. I made sure one person ate every meal. That was me. At no point in my life was I ever at such a point of hitting myself that I didn't take care of my physical needs, and if I did, then I wouldn't be here today. Right? The assumption is that we are going to care about ourselves. And so Paul says humility is actually about elevating others. Right? It's not lower yourself down. It's you see everyone else in this room, raise them up so that they are more significant than yourself. I like to think of it in this mindset, right? If, if, if there is a professional athlete who grew up in Allegan and late in, in, in their life, they come back to Allegan and decide that they're going to pour into the lives of the youth and teach them how to play the sport that made them famous we would look at that and say, wow, that's such humility, right? Because they were so high up and they stepped so low. They came and helped the kids. And I think we've got it backwards when we say that. I don't think that the professional has diminished their value to come and teach the kids. I think instead what they've done is they've taken the kids and they've elevated them and said, you are worth the time of the professional. When you have humility, it is not, Andrew is worthless and junk and all the way down there. Because that's not how God made you. It's, Andrew was made awesome, but you know who else was? Rachel. Absolutely. 
I'm going to give you a Baptist test right now. I'm convinced this was only within the Baptist denomination. It's fine. I grew up there. Um, you guys know this verse, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, you can take the world and you can put this blank. And what goes there? My name. That's right. I, I heard this so many times growing up. For God so loved Drew Johnson that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's true. That is how much Jesus loves me. But I think sometimes we stop there and we don't think, who else's name could we put in that blank? And we ought to be elevating others to that spot in our life where we know that God loved them enough to die. And where I love them enough to share that. The next chunk here is, is really big. It's a big debate among a lot of theologians. It's called the kenosis passage because it's all centered around this one word, kenosis. It's where we get emptied from. Um, so you'll see it in just a second. But this, I love it. I love it. It's probably one of the best-known passages in Philippians. After 4.13, I can take all verses out of context through Christ who strengthens me. But I want to look at the example for Christian growth, um, which starts with the reachable example, right? Read 2.5 with me. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also, or sorry, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I struggle reading this one in the ESV because there's only two translations out there that do it like this. this is, there's the RSV and the ESV. Everyone else phrases it something more like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, when you read it this way, it's really encouraging. Like, that mind is already yours to have. And I agree with that theologically, but I don't think that's what Paul was saying here. I think he was actually saying, have this mind. It's, an imper it's a commandment. Have this mind in you. But here's the thing. God doesn't give us commands that we cannot fulfill. And so when he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, he's saying, you are able to do it. It's attainable. It's reachable. Look at the rejected privilege in verse 6, where it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There are Christians who don't accept the, uh, the view of the Trinity that I hold to. Um, and I, I always wonder about this verse for them. Because Jesus was God, right? He was in the form of God. He was there with God in the beginning. That's John 1. Yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a really weird phrasing. It was worse in the King James. They phrase it, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And I just, I've never, it's just But this idea of grasping is really cool to me. Um, I used to, to do belaying. It was my favorite job at camp. So the kids would go climbing up the climbing wall, and I would do this motion for hours. This is the rope. You, you cinch them in so they don't fall to their death. And then you got you to gotta pull the extra rope out. It was good times. Um, 
So while I would be belaying, the kids would be climbing. And eventually, what would happen with a lot of kids is they would get up and they would look down. And their hands would go from this to this. And they were not going to go anywhere. And finally, you would coax them that it was okay, and if they wanted to come down, they could, and they just had to grab onto the rope, and they would grab onto the rope. <laughs> As though the carabiner that can hold a car is nothing for them. But they would grab onto that rope like dear life. That's the word grasped here. That Jesus who had, he had the form of God. He was God. And he still is, thankfully. But even though he could have held on to the glory and the majesty and sat in heaven and just watched the world go to hell, he didn't think it was worth holding on to those things. He had everything and he did not want to cling to it. So we see the regretful degradation. It's a big word, I don't like him. Rachel, help me here. Right, here's the big word, right? He emptied himself. And just how much does that mean? Well, I'm, I'm not going to have a huge theological debate today. It's not why I'm here. But I can tell you, he had to grow. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. How were men born? As a baby. They're squishy. <laughs> Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He went from being the most powerful being in the entire universe, the source and sustainer of the universe, to being the most fragile thing in human existence. And he had to grow, Luke 2, 52 says that he grew in stature and wisdom with God and man. And that boggles my mind that, that Jesus, the Son of God, would have to get to know his Father. And that he would have to rely on the Spirit working in his life to, to be able to do the things that he did. And I think sometimes they're really quick to judge the Pharisees that came into the life of Jesus, who hated him, who, who declared him a blasphemer for saying that he was the son of God. We're really quick to be like, how did you miss it? Because you had the, the entire Old Testament there, you had the prophecies, you were looking for the Messiah, and when he came, you missed it. But I think it was out of love for God that they did it. Because these were the men that by the age 15 had the Pentateuch memorized. I know Christians who have not read Leviticus. And these teenagers had it memorized. These are the men who would, who would hand transcribe the Bible so that we have today the copies we do. And they couldn't just hit print and let them all come out. They had to write down by hand word for word, letter by letter, and then they would count the letters. They would count how many A's are there because they wanted to make sure that they had all. That was their dedication to the word of God. And when they came to the name of God while they were writing, they would take their pen and they would wash it. And they would get new ink because they wanted to give the most honor and glory to the name of God that they could. 
And how could you hold that view of God and then be okay with some dirty, long-haired teacher walking in, having dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes, and saying that they are the same God who you take that much care to write about? Man, the humiliation of Jesus stepping down is insane. And I would love to say that it, it wasn't necessary. I would love to say that Jesus could have just gone through life, but he cared too much about us to do that. Hebrews chapter 4.15 says that he did it so that he could be our sympathetic high priest. Go read that in, in 7 and 8. They're all phenomenal. He did it because he wanted to be a sacrifice for us. He did it because he wanted to represent us, because no high priest could stand before God on their own. And he did it so that he could understand what we were going through. I had a teacher yell at me for this in, in college. I swear I was quoting him, but he thought I was wrong. I don't know. It's... But I said Jesus came so that he could know what it is to be human. And he said, listen, God is omniscient. He knows everything. But, but he didn't experience it. They had a really cool word for that in the Greek called um, gnosko. It means to know by experience. Jesus came so that he could know by experience what it is to be human. And I can't get over that. Because that's what humility is. And it didn't stay there. I'm happy to tell you Jesus did not stay a human who died and was buried. That was not the end of the story. In fact, what followed was this, this rightful elevation of Christ back to the place where he belonged. Right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of Jesus? And to the glory of God the Father. Hear what I'm saying, that this elevation of humility is not for us. If you say, I'm going to be so humble, God's going to bless me good. You've missed the point. Humility is not about bringing more honor to ourselves. It's about bringing honor and glory to God the Father. Now, if you've been listening carefully, you probably are thinking, Andrew, you know you contradicted yourself, right? You said humility is not about lowering ourselves, but here's Jesus stepping down out of heaven. Good, I'm glad you caught it. Very impressed. And it's, a, it's this very special case. Because Jesus couldn't raise us up to the standard of God. We're sinners. We couldn't handle it. And so Jesus had to step down. And because he did, when he was elevated, that gave us the right to be sons and daughters of God ourselves. And when we speak in humility, when we love in humility, when we act in humility, we raise the glory of God. And we are elevated to where he has for us as his sons and daughters. There's coming a day 
and it'll be glorious. So what do we do now, though? Right? There's some eschatology uh, here um, where it talks about this name of Jesus, right, that every knee will bow. Have you ever heard Jesus thrown around as a curse word? Doesn't, th- this isn't happening now. Right? Revelation 19.12 talks about when Jesus comes back to earth. And he's got a name, and, and the author of Revelation, John says, nobody knows the name but himself. God gave it to him. And at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But what about today? What do I do today? Because sometimes when you get these great examples of, of, of men of faith, and of Jesus especially, like it's hard to put that into terms with my life. Because I can't measure up, right? I'm going to talk about the persistence in Christian growth. Paul says this, therefore, my beloved, therefore, here's the, the conclusion of this argument. I love that Paul doesn't believe in impractical theology. He doesn't just debate for the sake of debating. He's a better man than me for that. I love debating. But he says, here's this truth about Christ and who he was. Now, because of that, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, when I'm watching, I've got some kids like that, um, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a really cool word here. It's got some really intricate, the, the Greek language is crazy. We love it. Um, but it means like to work on yourself expecting results. Work out your own salvation. You have this salvation, live it out. And man, that's, that's a weighty thing. So how do I deal with that? Because like, I mess up still. This isn't the hypothetical, this is my confession. To you, I still mess up. It's okay, Paul did too. Philippians 3, he bears himself open to the, the church in Philippi and says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering and become like him, even in death. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's okay to keep working on it. It's okay not to be there yet. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. As you grow, you have to keep straining forward. And you're not on your own. And I mean that in part that there is a room full of people who also still have struggles here with you today. But more so, and more blessedly, Paul goes on to say this in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Hang on, I thought I was supposed to work out my own salvation. Yeah, yeah, you all are, because, because it's God that works in you. Both to will and to do, for what? For his good pleasure. So is it man that, that makes the change? Is it God that makes the change? Yup. Yeah. 
And so you're not on your own in this fight. You're not on your own as you work to figure out what comforting love looks like. You're not on your own as you find completion in the joy of seeing others come to Christ. And you're not on your own as you struggle with this thing called humility. Pursue God for his good pleasure.